Since the merger vote, and I uh, just want to welcome you to Manchester Creek, everybody. One church, one church serving the Lord together in our community. If you're, if you were from, I'm going to do something here uh, that's a little bit different. If you were from um, Trinity, would you stand? Would you just stand? We just want to see who's here this morning, okay? We're glad you're here. Thank you. Okay. If, you've a, if you're a longtime uh, member of Manchester, would you stand? Okay, now, if you've, if you've just, if you've started to come to the church since um, uh, August, right? August was when we first started to worship together, the two churches. If you've started to come since August, would you stand? Okay. So we are a growing church, and God is doing some great things in our community, and we look forward to the future together and the great things that God is going to do in the future. Amen? Amen. 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 It's great to see uh, two churches come together and see the work that God is, do- God is doing in our midst. Um, I want to ask you if you would, I don't know if we mentioned this yet, but if you pull out your card uh, from your program, fill it out, tell us as much about yourself as you feel comfortable. If you want to tell me the color of your dog or your cat or the name of, of your parakeet, that's okay, whatever it is, but, uh, but please fill out a prayer request. We really want to be in prayer for you, and uh, that, that would be great. Last night, uh, uh, by the way, there will be a, a number of times where I am going to give all of you who are struggling as I am with either colds or allergies uh, a chance to go into a coughing fit, okay? Because I know that I'm going to have to cough and I'll just say, that's, now's the time, and then I'll cough, and you can all cough, and then we'll get back to the message, just so we, we won't waste a lot of time that way. Um, last night, um, before we went to bed, We were watching the news, and a report came on about um, a a 17-year-old boy had just been uh, captured because he had had killed his mother and his six-year-old son. Six-year-old brother, I'm sorry. You can see, I got this head cold, and it's... (laughs) six-year-old brother. Uh, There's something in your spirit when you hear those kinds of things. You say, that's just not right. That's just not right. This message this morning is from the book of Isaiah. And we're talking about this series of passages throughout the Bible that have this phrase, new song, sing a new song. And then the series is called Sing a New Song in the New Year. And so we're coming to another one of those passages. And in every one of the messages that I've, that I've given, I, I've tried to say, okay, what we're given this command to sing a new song. Why? What is the ground for how or why we are to sing a new song. For instance, in the passage uh, last week that, that actually Darren uh, covered, 
But the last passage that you looked at in this series was uh, Psalm 149. And uh, we're told in the first verse, sing a new song, praise the Lord, sing, a, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. And so I'm looking through this text and, and I'm looking for the why. And the why is in verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. And so the ground in that one was, why should we sing a new song? We should sing a new song because the Lord takes pleasure in you, in, in redeeming you, in making you his own. He, he, he takes pleasure when people are humbled and receive salvation. He takes pleasure in his people. And so we should sing a new song because we are a people who have been shaped by that experience. We've been born again to a living hope. In this passage, the reason that is given for why we should sing a new song is because God is the bringer of justice. And in a world that sees the kinds of things that we see in our world, cities filled with art and music, and, uh, and yet children are abused and thrown away, like trash, thousands of them. There's abortion, and there's infanticide, and there's child slaves, and abuse, and police take bribes, and courtrooms where the poor are mocked, and governments that ratify oppression of the weak by the strong all around us, all around the world. Families are destroyed by unresolved bitterness and, and loneliness and loathing. And there's bullying going on in schools and prejudice going on in some communities. And there's lying and there's such ugliness and it can all make your heart sick. And it makes your heart want to cry out for justice. For things, because the, the biblical, what is biblical justice? It is things being put right. And so, if you would, would you stand to hear the Word of God from Isaiah, chapter 40, 42. I'm going to read the first four verses, and then we're going to go and look at verses uh, 10 through 12. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Down to verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy, let them shout from the top of the mountains, let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. One more verse. 
the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Book of Isaiah is a <coughs> it's going to be interesting. Uh, I have to go back from here. The book of Isaiah, its theme is that uh, the Holy One of Israel will judge. He's going to restore. He's going to save his people. Sometimes the church remembers the last piece. He's going to save his people. And that is a key theme of the scripture. God is going to save his people Israel. He's going to save the nations. He's going to, sa- he's going to save the Gentiles. The, the Jews are going to be a light to the Gentiles. And that is the message that uh, our church and churches like ours that believe in the Bible and believe in the scripture oftentimes emphasize, but there's some other themes in the Scripture. Not just of God saving His people, but of God restoring uh, the creation, God restoring the nations, God restoring everything as it should be, that there would be justice in the world. The Holy One of Israel is coming to judge, and He's going to restore, and He's going to save. He's going to do all of those things. And a major theme of Isaiah is this judgment, this restoration that is going to happen because God is God. 425 times the word justice appears in the Bible. 144 of those occur in the prophets section of the scripture. And 41 of them occur in the book of Isaiah itself. The reason for that is the Holy One is concerned that His people live holy lives, that His people live righteous lives. He wants His people and the leaders to do the right thing. He wants His people to be treated right by the nations. And He wants His people to treat the nations, the peoples of the earth, He wants them to treat them right. And justice means to set things right. The book of Isaiah was written... According to tradition by Isaiah, prophesied around 742 to 700 in Jerusalem. And what is justice? I said in its simplest form, justice means to set things right. Three different times we're told in those first four verses that he he is going to bring justice. He's He's the bringer of justice. He's going to bring justice. Three different times. He's going, what does it mean? It means he's going to set things right. That's what he's going to do. In the book of Isaiah, the, the, the book itself, you could outline it this way if you were to break it down into three sections, the judgment of God's people and the nations because of their wickedness. The first 39 chapters are a lot of uh, judgment uh, being meted out and being pr- prophesied that that's what's going to happen. And then there's the restoration of God's people that begins in chapter 40 and goes on through chapter 55. And in that section is the section that we're dealing with which is the first of what uh, scholars have come to call the servant songs, where Jesus, in his 
uh, is prophesied in these servant songs about what his ministry is going to be like. And principally of the servant songs is Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 that talk about uh, Jesus going to the cross and uh, paying for our sins. And then the, the last chapter is the future of God's people uh, begins to talk in that way through that book. We're going to say in that second section, the restoration of God's people. This is the section that our theme phrase is found in that I just read from uh, verse 10 of chapter 42. Sing a new song uh, to the Lord. So if I can go through these, which I... I said this. So what's the basis of the exuberant joy of verses 10 through 12? What is the basis? As, I, as I'm studying this passage, I'm asking this question. What is the basis of all this exuberant joy that's going down in verse um, 10, 10 through 13? Sing to the Lord. A new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Some of your Bibles will translate coastlands as the islands. And people say, well, what, what, what is that even referring to? Well, generally, if you look at all of those passages where the, this phrase occurs, the coastlands, sometimes translated the islands, it, it's, a, it's a reference to the, the outer extremities of the world, the far furthest places you can find, the obscure places where anybody might dwell along a coastline. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the idea of the, of the good news going to the ends of the earth. And so the cry here is, let this song, this new song that's going to be sung, let it go to everywhere, from everywhere. Let, you who go down to the sea, you should be singing a new song. And, and it fills, fill the coastland and the inhabitants. Let the desert, and go, go into the desert places and the cities, lift up their voices. The villages of Kedar, that's uh, in modern day Syria. Uh, to the, uh, the inhabitants of Selah, sing for joy. Let them shout for the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Why, why all this exuberant joy? Why all this command to once again sing a new song? It's back in verses 1 through 4. It's because he's the bringer of justice because the first 39 chapters 40 chapters have been talking about God's judgment there were things are not right with the people of God things are not right with the nation of Israel things are not right in the nations of the earth and they need the revelation of God and so it's a cry for that finally finally justice is going to come What's the basis of the exuberant joy? I want to work backwards from verse 10 back to those first four verses because there's some other things in between in verses 5 through 8. And so first, why, what is the basis of that exuberant joy? He is a promise keeper, verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So he is the one who, who knows the end from the beginning. He keeps his promises. And so here he's making yet another promise. He's saying that these promises are going to be kept. 
and he's not going to share his glory with another. One of the things that gets obscured sometimes when we read our Bibles is uh, we, we read chapter by chapter, and so we read chapter 41, and we stop, and the next day maybe we pick up and we read the next, the next chapter. But there's something that goes on between the last verse of, of uh, chapter 41 and the first verse of chapter 42. Look at how they both begin. Uh, chapter 41, verse 29, begins this way. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. The whole 41st chapter was about idolatry. The whole 41st chapter was about God not getting his due because people are idol worshipers. The whole 41st chapter was about God uh, being disdained by the nations. And, and so he says in the end of, the, of that chapter, to sum it up, behold, they are a delusion. And then verse chapter 1 of 42, uh, verse 1 of chapter 42, behold my servant who I uphold. The, the, real, the second person of the Trinity, this is the Son of God being described here. Behold my servant, servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Put your finger in uh, there and turn to Matthew chapter 12, uh, 12. And we read this, beginning at verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there that um, the Pharisees were seeking to kill him. And many followed him, and he healed them, and, and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, the very passage we're talking about. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and I will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This whole passage is quoted right there in, in Matthew. This is referring to Jesus. This is a prophecy of Christ. And, and God is saying here that, look, you, you have been pursuing life uh, to the nations. He said, you've been pursuing life through your idols, and you've not been giving me my just worship. Judgment is going to come. And, and because of what flows out of not worshiping God is all of the godlessness of a culture, that too will be judged. And then the contrast is, well, you have had a delusion. I'm giving my servant here in chapter 42, verse 1. In verses 8 and 9, he's saying, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. He's saying he is a promise-keeping God. He's going to keep his promise to the nation of Israel. He's going to accomplish this. Second reason for this exuberant uh, joy is that he is a redeemer. Verse 6b and 7. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. He is a redeemer of people who have been subjugated. He is, he is that kind of God. Third thing, he is a caller of people, verses 6, 6a. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and, and I will keep you. 
This is what he does. He calls his people. He calls people to himself. He calls the nations to himself. It's not just Israel, but he calls the Gentiles like us. He calls us to himself. He's a caller. He he doesn't just sit and, and, and wait for people to come, but he calls people to himself. He calls people to be redeemed, and he calls people to be the recipients of his promises. But there's more. He is the creator. Verse 5. He says this. Thus says the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. He says, I'm the creator. I have the power to do everything I purpose to do. I created everything that you see. The seen and the unseen. I created it all. I have the power to do what I long to do and what I've promised to do. And one of the things that he promised to do way, way, way back in Genesis was that he was going to write all things. He was going to make all things right. He was going to bring justice to the world. But I'm going to look at verses 1 through 4 a little bit more deeply. In verses 1 through 4, he, he, we're told that he is the bringer of justice, but what, what else is in those verses? Well, you look at those a little bit more closely, you see this. Verse 1 describes his person. Verse 1 of chapter 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. He is the one who is upheld by God the Father. He is the one who is, in, who is delighted in by God the Father. The Spirit is upon him, and he is the bringer of justice in that verse. Second, in, in this second section, verses 2 and 3 describes the character of his ministry. So in his person, he is delighted in by God. He has the Spirit of God upon him. Uh, we, we hear that verse is quoted in the New Testament a number of times. For instance, when, when at the Transfiguration, uh, when Christ becomes as like lightning and uh, the voice from heaven cries out and says that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is an echo of this, this particular passage. But this one describes his ministry. And his, in his ministry, it, we're told that he will not cry out He will not lift up his voice. In other words, there's nothing bombastic, there's nothing loud, there's nothing obnoxious about Jesus in the New Testament. There's nothing uh, like that in his ministry. In fact, you know, think about this. Can you even imagine Jesus uh, running anywhere? Can you you imagine that? There's a calmness to the demeanor of Christ throughout the Scripture. Even in the passage, just before uh, the passage that I quoted from Matthew, where a man with a withered hand is, um, is, is, uh, is healed. And the story that, that happened just before that is that the Pharisees have probably placed that man with a withered hand in the synagogue. They're looking, they, come, they came to the synagogue hoping that Jesus would do some healing. Jesus sees the man with the withered hand, and he tells the man, come here and stand. 
The man gets up and approaches Jesus, stands next to Jesus, and then, and then, and then Jesus doesn't address the man. He turns and addresses the Pharisees. And he asks, What's, what, is it, what is it righteous to do? What is it just to do on the Sabbath? To heal? Go back and look at it. Go back and look at it. Matthew chapter 12. He went on from there and he entered the synagogue and a man was with them with a withered hand was there. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Oh, how much more value is a man than a sheep. So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, if you read the other gospel accounts, you'll find that before he said that, he asked the man to come and stand next to him. Then he turns to the Pharisees and and asks them the question. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the others. Look at the next verse. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. One of the other gospel accounts says, but they were furious with him because he didn't fall into their trap. Now, you think of how unjust that is. This is why Jesus came. The man has been placed there. They know that Jesus is going to see him. They know that Jesus is going to want to heal him it's a, it, it, on a Sabbath. And, and so they, they ask the question. Jesus says, come here and stand here. Then he turns to the Pharisees and he asks this question. Silence. Then Jesus heals him, and they're furious with him. The man has had a hand that, you know, maybe is all withered. He can't use it. It's unfunctional. Everybody knows it. That's why he's there. And then Jesus says, stretch out your hand. He stretches out his hand, and it's made whole, and they all see it. And instead of rejoicing at this thing that has been made right, they're furious at Jesus. This is unjust. But you read, read the text. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. He's not loud. He's not boisterous. He's not not pushing. He's just teaching. He doesn't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And then we're told a bruised reed. This is the character of his ministry. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick 
he will not quench. See, the character of his ministry is that he is compassionate. He looks for the weak. He looks for the needy. He looks for the hurting. He looks for the broken. He looks for those that have been abused. He looks for those who need help. He's compassionate. Some of you feel like bruised reeds at times. Amen? We feel like the world is uh, against us for whatever reason. But he looks for people who are oppressed. He looks for people who are broken. And he, he does not bruise them anymore. And the smoldering wick, the faintly burning wick. What is a faintly burning wick? Why does a faintly burning wick, why, why does it smolder? Answer, it has no supply of oil. He's the one who provides what is needed. When people are broken and hurting and need compassion, that's what he does. This is his ministry. And when you know that that's coming, that the promise keeper has made, is going to make good on that promise, that one day, one day, all things will be made right. It's caused to sing a new song. Bruised reeds will not always be bruised by the powerful, and smoldering wicks will not always have a lack of supply. He won't quench the smallest hope, and he will supply what is needed. This is the character of the ministry of the one who is coming the servant of Isaiah. And we know who came. And then verse 4 describes the character of the ex- and the extent of his ministry when it talks about the coastlands. He'll not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He is going to bring justice. The third time it's mentioned. He's going to bring justice. He's never going to be discouraged. In other words, he's going to be relentless in this pursuit. And it will be global in its expanse. That's what he's going to do. This is the message of the Scripture everywhere we turn in the Scripture. I'm bouncing you around a little bit today, but go to Philippians chapter four, get chapter one. Philippians chapter one, verse six. Paul's talking about uh, his ministry based on Jesus' ministry, and he says this, "I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ." Paul says, on the basis of the cross, on the basis of who Jesus is, on the basis of what he's done, on the basis of what he's promised, on the basis of of, of the ministry that he's given me, on the basis of what he's doing in the world, I'm telling you this, I'm confident of this, I'm confident that 
I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. And that word completion is the word, is some translators say he will make it perfect. The only thing worth uh, uh, using to describe what God is going to do in your life, through your life, by the end of your life, at a blink in time perhaps, uh, after your life, is that it has been made perfect by God. And all of us are, are in that stage where we're all, in the, we're all in process, right? None of us are perfect yet. We, we're not. We haven't been made perfect. All of us are still struggling with sin. All of us are still struggling with pride. But, but Paul says, look, here's, here's what I'm confident about. He's a promise keeper. He keeps his promises. He makes things right. And he's going to correct everything in our lives. He's going to do that. So Paul then continues his argument. And so in chapter 2, verse 13, he says this. Uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I guarantee you God is more committed to his good pleasure in working out in your life than you are. Isn't that great news? That's worth singing a new song about, right? That God is at work in my life in your life, he, he works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, how many of you, you go to bed at night and you say, oh, Lord, I wish I'd, how is it possible that I'm 43 years old in Christ or 45 years old in Christ or 20 years old in Christ or 10 years old in Christ and I'm still not further along? Anybody ever think that way? Not <laughs> every single day. <clears throat> Why aren't I further along in holiness, in godliness? Why? But Paul says, I know who God is. I know what Jesus has revealed. And he's going to work. He's working. He's working. He's working patiently. And so in chapter 3, verse 13, here's his admonition. Uh, chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because he's confident that God started the work and God's going to finish the work. And because God's at work in his life, to will and to work for his own good pleasure, he says this. Here's what I do. I keep pressing on. I keep pressing on. I keep pressing into Christ because he's going to make good on his promises. And so where does the book end up? Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. In other words, sing a new song. See, this is, this is the theme of book after book. This is the theme of the whole book. God is going to bring justice. He's going to right things. Why? Because he describes his character and he describes his ministry and he describes the extent that he wants it to go everywhere. He wants it to be known everywhere. This is how the people of God ought to live. Which is where we get to some challenging applications. One. We must live lives that are committed to justice, to setting things right. We must. We got to ask this question, you know, as, as one person asked, what does justice look like when the people of God are doing justice in the world? What does it look like in the market square? What does it look like in the world? And one famous pastor put it this way. Justice is love 
Justice is love working against everything that is raised up against love. And you see something going wrong in the world, and there's something in your spirit that cries out that's wrong. And in your sphere, in your little part of the world, you say, I'm going to live differently than that. And in little and small ways, we work hard at being committed to setting things right with our God. We are on a mission for our God, with our God, doing the ministry that we do in the world like our God, who came to seek and to save, seek and to serve and to save lost people. We got to live lives that are committed to justice, to setting things right, to figuring that out in the public square. Second, our ministries and our lives should be patterned on the Lord's own meekness and sensitivity. We ought to be doing, working for justice, working to set things right in the name of our God in, in a way that reflects the Lord's own pattern of, of meekness and humility and sensitivity that we ought to not be just bulldozing over people, but we ought to look for the smoldering wicks and those bruised reeds among us and this week it's your neighbor, and the next week it's your son, and the next week it's your daughter, and the next week it's you, and the next week it's the neighbor on the other side. It's going to change, but we ought to be looking. We ought to be praying, Lord, how can I be light and love? How can I bring your word to these people who are hurting, who are bruised, who are smoldering? How can I bring you to them? That ought to be the texture of our ministry. And then third, our ministries must bring um, light to the coastlands. I.e., they must be global in scope. We can't just say, well, I'm just going to care for, you know, the people I want to care for. Or the people who are nearest. Or the people who are easiest, or the people that come across my, my, uh, <coughs> there it goes. <coughs> I'm sorry. Right at the end of the message. <coughs> we're not contagious, we're just coughing. We've got to think bigger. Today. Today, somebody... I mean, just, just last week, we, sat, we had that little girl that was... That family's hurting. We've got to think bigger. 
International Justice Mission tells us that this area, Charlotte, and this area of South Carolina is one of the worst areas for uh, sex trafficking in the country. Did you know that? It's not right. It's not right. The people of God should have the texture of the Spirit of God and the Son of God in the way that we minister in the world and the things that we care about. We've got to develop bigger hearts. And here's the great thing. We can. We can. Know why? Because he started a work in our life. He's not going to give up on it. He's relentless. He's going to keep working that plan. He wants us to be people who bring light and love to the world. He wants us to be people who proclaim the glad tidings of the gospel. We can do this. He will enlarge us at if. If we ask him to. And when we live this way, the whole world will sing a new song of his praise to the ends of the earth. So let's live this way. Right? That's, that's why we came together, our two churches. We came together so that we could bring more glory to God together than we could apart. Let's, let's take the gospel to people. Let's, let's start praying for people. Not, I, here's a shocker. I don't pray for the salvation of, of non-believers. Our pastor doesn't pray for the salvation. He's a terrible pastor. You know why? Because there is not one command in the scripture to pray for the salvation of the lost. I'll tell you what there is. A number of commands to, though. A number of requests for. There's a lot of requests for. Pray that I would be bold to preach. Pray for opportunities to preach. Pray for an openness to the gospel. Now, I overstated it. I do pray for the, for the lost. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing. But it is interesting that there is no command to do that. None. You can look. I've done this in three different seminaries. Students have looked to try and contradict me. They've never succeeded. There's one passage where Paul says that he prays for his countrymen, but it's not a command. It's his example. So if you want to pray for the lost, great. But I'll tell you, a better prayer to pray is pray that God would make you bold. Because you know why, it's, know why we pray for the lost? And we don't pray to be made bold? Pardon me? So we, so we don't have to do it. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. We can, we can do something spiritual, pat ourselves on the back, and, and think, well, I, I, I did my duty. I, I pray for the lost. I do. We need to pray for boldness to proclaim, to risk, to risk rejection for the name of Christ. I heard about this. I, I, I want to I trace it out. I heard that there was, there was a, a moody professor who was Jewish. And he was being interviewed 
on a radio program. Now, you know, radio silence is really difficult. <laughs> or maybe it was a television program, but anyway. I want to trace it out. He's a, he's a Jewish believer teaching at Moody. He's being interviewed on the radio or the television. I can't remember which. But the interviewer kind of tried to get under his skin, and he said, do you really believe that all Jewish people are going to be lost? And the question hangs in the air. And the Moody professor, Jewish believer, being asked about other Jews who have not believed in Christ. And the story is told that it was two minutes before he could control his weeping. And that the interviewer finally said, before he spoke, that is probably the greatest defense of the gospel I've ever heard. You ever weep for the lost? It's a just thing for the people of God to feel that deeply about these things. It's an unjust thing for us not to feel that. Because here's the deal. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. He's going to right all wrongs. And one of the greatest wrongs was, he, was me. I was forgiven all of my sins. You were forgiven all of your sins. He's going to right all wrongs in the end. So let's follow him. Amen? Have the worship team come, and as they do, I want to pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, sometimes, uh, <coughs> sometimes we preach, and um, we do the best that we can do given the week that we had. But I pray, Lord, that you might use my faltering words correct them, amend them, use them, stimulate your people who you have redeemed, these precious people here who love you. Lord, make of each of us individually, make of us holy together, make us mighty men and women who live passionately for and like our Savior. That we would be a people who do not quench smoldering wicks, do not bruise damaged reeds, that we would be a people that the world even would delight in singing about because of the quality of our love and the character of our care. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.